electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Goodbye, Mag7. Hello, AI5. We'll trade and debate the new most important names in the market, at least according to one well-known tech investor. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Bryn Talkington, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal. Let's check the markets. We are green across the board today. We have the S&P sitting above 4,900. Dow's above 38,000. We had a good PCE. The 10 years at 414 or so. And Josh Brown, we get ready for a big week. Mega cap earnings, the Fed meeting. There's your 10-year note there. Um, so how should we be thinking about the week that was and the one that will be? I think probably um, the big tailwind that sends us into next week. And of course, er those earnings will be pivotal, pivotal just mathematically. Those stocks are really big. They really move the market when they go up and down. The commentary that you'll hear out of those management teams will absolutely impact the way people are feeling about the outlook for other stocks that they own. Um, but we don't know what's coming out yet. So let's put that aside. I think the uh, thing that's really going to send us into those reports with a decent tailwind is this core PCE number. Remember that the Fed focuses more on this than they do on CPI. Um, and now you've got basically a six-month and a three-month annualized sub-2% uh, inflation regime. And that's like, at, at this point, uh, I think that that could clinch the, the, the rate cut cycle beginning. So right now, the street is only uh, assigning a 53% probability to the first cut happening in March. Um, that's down from a month ago, but up from a week ago, I guess is the best way to put it. I spoke with uh, Neil Dutta from RenMac. He's the only Wall Street economist who told you a year ago, no recession in 2023. We had this huge debate all year, hard landing or soft landing. He said, how about no landing? Um, Neil thinks they go in March, and this print that we see today gives them cover to do that. Even better, though, I want to point out the 10-year, two-year uh, spread. This is about to uninvert. It's been trending in that direction for a while. Uh, right now, it's at negative 0.14. Outside of the negative 0.13 that it hit in October, this is the closest we've been to an uninversion. We've had an inverted yield curve for what seems like years now. To me, that becomes really important also, especially when you think about all of the negative sentiment around whether or not, okay, we didn't have the 23 recession, maybe mm -hmm. it's a 24 recession. I, I think that uninversion happens probably uh, coinciding with this rate cut cycle getting underway. And I think we should be keeping our eye on it. So, Jimmy, we're going to get to mega caps and the earnings and all that. But I love what Leisman um, posted today by way of capital economics, quote, immaculate disinflation nearly complete. It's time for the Fed officials to take the win 
and start dialing back the level of policy restrictiveness soon. Now, I know the market has sort of further backed away from the idea of March. It's, as Josh said, a touch less than 50%. But I wonder what kind of clues we might get from the Fed chair this week or next week, excuse me, and how that's going to impact the trade in the uh, in the days and weeks ahead. So great macro analysis from Josh just now, and I like Steve's comments as well. I can't overstate the importance of the two handle on the PCE, both on the headline and the core level. But here's why it matters to me as a stock investor. It's not actually the macro environment, because I think most of us have been for quite some time on the soft, or if you want to call it a no landing scenario, that's fine. Here's why it matters to me, though. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not very happy with the earnings season so far. It's not been good. Let's no. just not okay. good. kid ourselves. It's, out, it's right? out there, right? We're talking about it now we can be honest which sets other, the right? stage for next week even more so it it does but let me also just say this let's okay just said it right the earnings season so far is not good but if you have further indications as Josh and Steve were just talking about that the Fed really should be taking the wind and ta- taking the wind and taking its foot off the brake pedal then that means that the stock market can give a little more time like another quarter or so for earnings to start to, to increase they haven't I'm looking right now at calendar year 24 estimates so uh, from, from the macro analyst community, they're at the low, lowest they've been, around 242, actually just under 242. We need those revisions to start peaking up, not down, which is what they've done for a year. And I think if the Fed can take its foot off the brake, you'll start to get those revisions going up. That's why today's news matters to me, profits, profit growth. Yeah, Bryn, the market is, is a bit looking through some of these disappointing earnings reports, too. I, we, we said the S&P is at 4,900, above, above that now. And Dow is, you know, uh, nicely above 38,000, 38,174 with, with today's gain. Um, it does set the stage, though, for a pivotal week, whether Powell moves the market or these mega cap earnings do. Right. I mean, I think ultimately the PCE today is the information that we needed that, yes, inflation is slowing, that the Fed can start. I don't think the Fed's going to go in March. That's my, that's my guess. I think they, they wait. They wait another meeting um, just to make sure. Because, once again, I know that Jay Powell definitely has the memory of, of Arthur Burns and, and doesn't want to repeat the proverbial 1970s. I don't think we will. So I think they wait a little bit longer. But listen, really, I mean, technology is such a big part of the S&P. It's such a big part of earnings. When the mega caps really start to print, to start coming out with earnings, I think they're going to be good. And I think they're going to be ebullient in their conversation around AI. And I think that's really when things are going to start um, fleshing out. I do think the biggest date will be February 21st, though, when NVIDIA comes out. To me, that's going to be the pivotal moment if we can continue to go higher um, in tech or we're going to start to take a breather. You know, Jenny, I, I almost feel like we need to get away from this idea. I think the market is telling you this in some respects, that a strong economy means that the Fed's worried that inflation is going to come back. Like Bryn makes the Arthur Burns reference from the 70s, et cetera when the evidence would almost suggest otherwise, because the economy is strong, the data continues to be good, and inflation continues to go down, okay? The PCE is the latest evidence. It's the Fed's favorite read. And that suggests that, which is why the Fed decided and made it clear in the past that they're not so worried about choking off the economy anymore at all. They're more worried about getting inflation down, and it is in their favor. They are winning. So what I think, I think we're losing sight of when we're talking about the Fed starting to cut and when they cut, you know, what does that really mean? And I think we've become so accustomed to thinking of Fed cuts as stimulating 
right? And all they, yeah, they really be they, doing. They will be. Okay, but they shouldn't be. They will be. You know what they should be? What they really are? They're normalizing. So if we yes, get three, which, which right. is, is when, when you're normalizing from uh, the degree at which they hiked. Yes, that's stimulative. But it should, but it really shouldn't be, right? It's not them rejuicing the economy. It's not them bringing rates back down to zero and saying like, hey, you know, you get to borrow for for nothing forever and just go crazy and re and unbalance the risk reward scenario. No, but so two percent is better than five percent. It is better, but it's not what we were at. It's not. I think I really think that people out there, when they ran the market up in December and people were talking about and, and the market was kind of pricing in like six rate cuts, that was pricing in act like active, intense stimulation ahead. And that's not what really we should be looking at. We should be looking at normalization, which then says to you, what's the right market multiple? And I would argue it's not what it was in a highly stimulative environment that we were in. It's not 21 times, it's not 20 times. Like, you know what it's probably? Somewhere between 17 and 19 times, which is above the 16 times that it was. So I'm really cautious going into next week. And in our equity income strategy and the dividend portfolio, right, that we've got about 10% cash. In our growth strategy, we've got about 7% cash. Why are you now, so cautious going into next week? Because I think there, you know, I know we'll get into Intel later, but I think there's a lot of hope and expectation in shares. And so when we say it's not been a great earnings season, actually the numbers are coming in okay, but there was so Depends much- Depends what stocks you're in, that's the absolutely, problem. Absolutely, but there was so much anticipation in so many stocks that I don't think whatever whatever's said next week it's hard to imagine it can it can keep up. I mean, we're talking about the AI5. That sounds super cool, right? It sounds like MI5. It sounds really, really, I don't know. I don't want to say bad words on TV. It just sounds really cool. So, um, but there's an excitement. There's a euphoria. There's an irrationality for what those valuations should be. And when we get later in the show, too, I'll tell you something we sold. It's a great company. But the problem is that when something trades at 57 times earnings, no matter how great it is, the story and the valuation no longer work. And I think that that's what we might get into next week, which is seeing like great story. But you know what? But see, that's the argument. I don't know, Bryn. That's the argument that people who haven't been in the right stocks continue to make. They justify yep. it by the valuations are too rich. Whereas the valuations have been justified in many respects by the guidance and the promise and in even a greater degree, the monetization that's already being realized. If you look at an NVIDIA and a Microsoft, right. for example. Right. I mean, so like NVIDIA, in terms of you would never have bought one would never have bought NVIDIA if they focused on the valuations because it would have just been too expensive. I mean, Jenny obviously runs an equity income. So 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 that aside. But I think it's important. Valuations and multiples are really a terrible timing mechanism. I think fundamentally, if you're like, well, this is just too rich for me, I get it. But I think that what you're going to see, especially in certain companies, and we'll get to Intel, but I mean, there's a you could drive a bus through the difference between an Intel and an AMD mm -hmm. and an NVIDIA. And mm -hmm. so I think you're going to continue to see a dispersion within these companies. And if you don't deliver, whether it was Tesla two days ago or it was Intel today, the street's going to cut your legs out underneath you and we'll have no mercy. Well, I think we're going to continue to see the Netflix, the, win the winners get bigger and the losers, the, mar the market will not suffer fools. That's why, Josh, you have people like Glenn Kacher of Light Street, who yesterday on Closing Bell coined that AI5 and said, you know what, get Tesla out of here in terms of the, you know, the Mag 7. He owned it. He doesn't own it anymore. Sold it at the end of last year. Um, obviously been a dumpster fire this year in terms of the, the stock. And then this week, it's been horrible, down 12 to 13 percent. Go with the AI5 from here forward, he says. Microsoft, NVIDIA, AMD, Taiwan Semi, and Broadcom. 
those are the ones you should be focused on. Now, I'll also say he likes Meta a lot still, and he, he's in it. Um, obviously, conspicuously absent is Alphabet, which we can debate too. But what about this so-called AI5? Focus on those stocks over what was the Mag7. Listen, that dude is really smart. I'm not going to, like, out-technology Glenn. I would, just, I would just point out we could have made that same list in 1998, and none of those companies uh, still exist in their, in their form back from, their, from back then. Uh, I mean, some of them do, but, like, many of them spent, like, decades as a shadow of their former selves. I'm looking at you, Intel, and Cisco. So that's really, really tough to do that kind of uh, thing. It's easy to say, here are the companies that right now have the most sales growth directly as a result of the AI revolution. That's what he's saying. All right, like, fine, let's take it like, for face value at yeah, that. Yeah, but everyone we knows that. Whatever. Well, I don't know. I don't, everyone, you know, I right. don't think a, I don't think a lot of knows people were, fo were focusing on Taiwan Semi, for, for example. They weren't. Some were, but if the stock's up 13.5%, year to date were enough people i think enough people focused judge, on broadcom for example judge, maybe not but you're talking about some of the biggest market caps in the world they're not four trillion but they're not 20 billion they're not um they're not like undiscovered gems this is what i would tell you the the most likely outcome of all of this ai spending is number one a lot of startups are going to come along. Some of them will become really important, but a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of them will go to zero. That's perfectly natural and normal. That's how that end of the spectrum works. At the other end of the spectrum, you have $4 trillion companies. Maybe some of them should be $5 trillion. We'll find that out. Um, but where the real money is going to be made is in the middle by the types of companies that Jenny owns, the types of companies that Jim owns. If you have companies that are normally spending X dollars on labor and related overhead that can cut those numbers over the next 10 years, that money will drop directly to the bottom line, even if you assume a higher CapEx or tech spend in order to get there. The true promise of AI may not necessarily reward the shareholders in the most AI uh, relevant companies. The true promise is probably going to be a profit margin story for all of the other companies that have nothing to do with AI. And right. that, for me, is, is a reason to be bullish, but not be focused on just five stocks. Well, I just think it's so cool that we're finally t changing the conversation from MAG7 to AI5, because you know what that is? That's leadership rotation. And so when Josh says you could back, look back to 1998, I think Microsoft was actually one of them in 1998. But we need to be really aware that the leadership rotates. And so when Bryn, you know, Bryn, I think you were a little callous in saying valuation's a trap, but actually it's not. Because for, for the last three years, I've been saying Tesla should be priced more like a car company. And there are all these arguments. No, it's a technology company. No, it's a battery company. You know what? It's behaving like a car company and it's being priced like a car company. I think, Vin, so, I think Bryn, to be fair, I think her greater point is don't yeah. buy or sell or trade stocks around just because of valuation. You have to have it both working. Yeah. You could make the argument for valuation on Microsoft and the story. You could make the argument for valuation on NVIDIA and the story. No, but if you said, no, 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 but, but these things are different. If you... If, uh, NVIDIA's valuation is lower now than it was right. six months ago. Right. So you just the have stock to price is higher today than it was six months but ago. You if have. you would have sold it but six the months expectations ago, expectations are higher. Right. But of course, okay. but that's what my point is. If you would have sold it six months ago based on a valuation you thought was elevated. This is my point. This is the exact reason why you don't. Okay, but you had to even six months ago say, is the story working and is the valuation working?
And for the last three years, I've been saying on Tesla, the valuation's working. Sorry, the, the story works, the valuation doesn't. Yeah, but you're telling me that Microsoft's story isn't working because the valuation's is. at 35? It is. That's why it gets to stay in the AI5. That's why it gets to stay in that group, right? So who's been kicked out? Facebook's been, Meta's been kicked out. Tesla's been kicked but out. Meta, Netflix, Meta is working. It's not really it's kicked working, out. It's working, but it's not going to be the leadership. I, don't, I mean, at least according to the AI5. Well, right? I don't know. Meta, just had, Meta just had its best year ever. For sure. Now and you coming know off its worst, it's but still. It's not going to have that kind of year again in the future. And so what are we talking about now? We're talking about AMD and TSMC in ways that we haven't before. Leadership is rotating, and that's how it should be. But you have to. You don't sell something just because of the valuation. You don't sell something just because of the story. You don't buy it just because of either of both either. But you have to look at the valuation. Otherwise, you're going to sit in a Tesla, ride it down 50%, and like be like, well, it's a cool story. People like buying it still. Bryn? I think you have to look at both all the time. Yeah. Well, so, so first of all, on Tesla, I mean, Tesla is one of the best performing stocks of all time. In the last five years, it's up over 800%. So, so let's just like not pile on Tesla because the past two quarters, they're in a transition. They didn't have a great call the last two quarters, but come on, this is like one of the most innovative, not only like automobile company, manufacturing company, technology company, et cetera, et cetera, of our time. So if you don't want to buy Tesla, that's fine. But to say it's like a dumpster fire, not done well, that's just, that's just not accurate, by the way. It's been an amazing performer, okay? And I think that when it comes to valuations, well, it's a dumpster you can't fire actually recently, look at Microsoft. So I'm not talking about a five-year, 20-year yeah, chart. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think when it, when it, when it, Scott, when it comes to valuations, really where, where I stand is that really it's not, do I think the market, do I think the valuation is too cheap or too expensive? It's what multiple is the market willing to pay right. for stock X? And that's really where the hard work comes in to say, I think the market's mispricing it or overpricing it. It's like, there's no reason Microsoft should trade at a 35 or whatever it is. It's just that the market thinks that's the multiple it should be. A year from now, it could say it should be a 20. And so I, that's where I think that valuations can be a trap because you just don't know the whims and the sentiment of the market and the multiple the market wants to price on an individual name. Well, I mean, the, the market was obviously mispricing Intel because the stock had a 30-some-odd percent run-up into the print, and today it is getting crushed right. on, on the outlook. Christina Partsinovelos is sitting at the desk with us today to sort of give us a sweep of, of that. You know, expectations, I guess, were up going in because of the stock appreciation. You guess. Going from 32 bucks early September to 50 bucks in December, the expectations were definitely there. And I think it was reset after this earnings report. And much of it not had to, had to do with the Q1 guidance and not Q4 performance because it wasn't that bad Q4. They actually did Great. pretty well. But it's the guidance that was 18 percent lower quarter over quarter, lower than every single analyst estimate out there. Uh, the company, so I, I caught up with uh, some management on a call before their earnings call, and they listed three things they reiterated on the call. They blamed Mobileye because they are the majority shareholder. Mobileye does um, autonomous driving technology. Uh, they blame, blamed their programmable chips department, which is a little bit weaker as more people shift their money towards you know, AI-related chips and maybe away from other specific ones. And the last of the foundry business. So that's actually an argument for the bears. Hey, those three items that they listed are not part of their, let's say, core business. So it's an opportunity for Intel to turn themselves around. But then you have the, the bears out there the saying, how long do we have to wait for this transition period? Well, Stacey Raskin of Bernstein says, quote, how many times can Intel push the reset exactly. button? Exactly. Right? So now he, I think Stacey's pushing it to 2026, I think, in his note. But a lot of people are just staying on the sidelines, hoping for this change. And there's still some, like, hope. 
that's the key part with Intel. They're try, they're still on their roadmap for their product launches. They signed a new foundry customer. But how long do you have to wait? And so for to your point, starting this conversation, people got into the stock maybe not realizing the timing of this turnaround and the timing of things to progress, even though Intel promises that every quarter after Q1 will increase mm-hmm. incrementally, uh, sequentially, as well as year over year in 2024. Hope, hope is a dangerous thing. Well, it's better than... Said Red and Shawshank. <laughs> Yeah, but you, it depends on the timing hope? of entry. You still from, have From hope? this point, I do. I don't think we're going to have why? a year like we do. Okay, so first of all, why? you're totally right. The expectations were too high, and that's why I'm nervous about next week. So why do I have hope? Yeah. Because we need to remember that they that what Pat Gelsinger is doing is taking a strong page from Jamie Dimon, which is under-promise, over-deliver. Right? So when he resets these, we need to remember they actually just beat Q4 earnings by 23%. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really – and I, I was actually surprised – by the magnitude of decline today. Just in that, I thought like data center had already been accounted for. Yes, I knew there was a lot of hope in the stock. The thing's up 100% since February last year. It was down at 23, it's at, well, it was at 47 the, you know, last night. It's up about 100% in the last year. That says there's a lot of emotion, a lot of stock in there. But why did I stick with it last year? Because we thought they can return to $2 of earnings. Mm-hmm. This gets back to the hope. They can return to $2 of earnings. They're on track to do that. Last year, it was trading at 12 times when it was at $23. Now, it's trading at 25 times. Yeah, I figure you take the gift of the stock appreciation and say, God, I was waiting for this and we bounce. We might get there, but I'm not selling it down 10% today because I think that this is a little bit overdone. I think it was actually kind of a fine quarter. I think they're doing at this point more than I expected they would be doing last year. Things are getting better faster, but it can't be a straight line, right? You know, not everything's seamless, but I really do think if we look back since Pat Gelsinger has been there, he has under-promised and over-delivered almost every single quarter. Um, there might have been one where it wasn't quite perfect. I, I don't have in front of me what the performance of the stock is since, since Mr. Gelsinger came back, but um, maybe we can. It's not good. We, we could, I, no, I know like it's flat. not, but let's. Josh, it's like flat. We can work it up in the control room, perhaps, yeah. if we have time, guys. If you can do it, great. Okay, if yes. not, totally get it. What do you want to say? Let's uh, compare they, it to the. Hang, let's compare hang. it to the sector. Okay, but uh, hang on, we can do both. But Christina, wait, wait, compare Intel to the sector. But just to your point, um, yeah. February twenty-first, the Foundry Day might actually be an opportunity to get out if you would, because they may announce a new customer. I don't know this, but there's an opportunity to see the stock regain a little bit. Uh, comparing it to the sector, Intel actually outperformed at the SMH and the stocks over the last three months leading into this earnings report. Uh, SMH is a whole other story that it may be in overbought territory, but. Um, in, it's part of that category when you divide the compute versus non-compute, and Intel was sort of in between both, and now we're seeing that ne- negative reaction uh, to this weakness in data center revenue, lo- loss of market share to AMD, too. Christina, you know uh, you, you know my thesis, which is that the overall semiconductor industry has, has bottomed, okay, and that we're seeing growth in end market demand, whether it's laptops, whether it's smartphones. Now, there's a thin line between hope and yeah. expectations, all right? My expectations are that it has bottomed and it will eventually support Intel and Qualcomm and NXP. But here's the thing. When a market or an industry bottoms, not everybody comes out at the same time. Yeah. It just, you know, there's yep. only so many incremental orders. The first incremental orders have gone to Taiwan Semi, right? They're the biggest foundry. The incremental orders are not going to go, I'm sorry, Jenny, to Intel, which is just getting started in foundries. But if the expectation is correct that those end markets have bottomed, and I really think based on economic strength they have, then it's just a matter of time before the positive news that you saw at Taiwan Semi come through to Intel, come through to Qualcomm, come through to NXPI, taking nothing away from AMD or Broadcom or NVIDIA. How how do you feel about what I just said? 
I agree, but then you are taking that thesis that this is longer than anticipated, that you yes. have to stay on the sidelines for a little bit sure. longer. And then even to for AMD, okay. AMD is on Tuesday, right? You're seeing the stock down ah, ever so slightly, down less than 1% today. Why is that? Because AMD has a grand exposure to PCs. You saw weakness in servers for Intel. So this bottoming that's going to is happened here, Q1, whatever you want to call it. I agree with you on that. I just wonder how long do you have to wait for that? That seems to be the question that from investors point. Okay. I'll go back to the Shawshank thing. You <laughs> only because I think it fits is that you know Jimmy says why bother having to tunnel through the wall to you know crawl through five football fields of foulness to get to the other side when it's uncertain what's going to happen there where AMD, Broadcom, Nvidia, those are proving to be Taiwan Semi, well, others are proving to be the places to be. By the way, to answer the question, thank you, Control Room. Uh, we have it down 29% Intel since February 15th of 2021. When he took over. Okay, interesting. That's, um, that's great. It's not great, it's sad. <laughs> um, so. Right, you're willing to, you're willing to tunnel through willing. the wall, to but you know climb what? through Always all this that. garbage. And, right. and, and it was cheap and the whole time. And hope that the other side's gonna be better. Yeah, and Josh, if I'd sold when you and I were having an argument about it last year and you were telling me it was irrelevant and nobody cared about Intel anymore, and I said to you, yeah, but they're still doing $60 billion in revenues. If I'd sold, I would have let 100% return on the table, which is why you start Jenny. every day. Don't even, like, we'll catch up on that later. It's gonna turn into a bickering Jenny. match. Josh, go ahead. But, Jenny, oh, no, on. it's not. No, it's not. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> no, it's not. Listen, three, year, three years ago, three years ago, we were having bet? debates, and it, now, just generally, Intel was always a value stock, always, always. cheap. Here's the pro okay, here's the problem. Three years ago, NVIDIA's expensive, Intel's cheap, therefore, blah, 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 cash flow, et cetera, buy Intel. Intel's down 3% over the last three years, ending yesterday. NVIDIA is up 350%, but the sector, the semiconductor sector is up 62%. You literally could have thrown darts, okay, and there is not the one other large-cap semi-company that would have been worse. But here's the answer to Scott's not question. One. Like, do you really want to slog through it? The reason I slog through it is because this is in our disciplined growth strategy, where there is a very, very disciplined process, which is look for companies with a 5% or better free cash flow yield where there's earnings growth on top of it. So I'm going to have a whiff on an Intel, but I'm going to have total home runs on things like Palo Alto and United Rentals also. And by maintaining that process, you miss some, but you also hit some huge home runs. And so you adjust the positions in the portfolio, you get a black eye here or there, but you also reassess why do I own this every time. So last year at this time, we thought it had a lot of upside and it did. Okay. We'll make that the last word of that segment. Thank you, Jenny. Christina, thank you as well. When we come back, we do have more committee moves to discuss. We have trades on Visa, American Express, Snap, and more. Jenny is out of a big winner. We're going to tell you about that too when we come back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, 
drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, let's hit this move uh, that I referenced in the tease going to break. You sold Palo Alto. Right. Uh, massive winner. Mm-hmm. Well, why sell it now? So we bought this in 2016 for $43 a share. It's trading at 340 ish now. We looked at it on multiple different valuation basis. 57 times earnings, 2.9% free cash flow yield, 12 times revenue. However you look at those, it's expensive. And you look at, it, you look at Palo Alto, right, the story part of it. The story's fantastic. We think they'll still have 18% earnings growth ahead, but it's a really different company than we originally bought. When we bought it, it was $12 billion market cap, now it's 100. They had 1,800 employees, now they have 14,000, sorry, 3,800 employees, they have 14,000. The needle is going to be much harder to move. So I don't really want to own a company in our discipline growth strategy that maybe is gonna squeak out 10% market-like earnings, market-like returns ahead. I think we can do better. So we took the position off the table. It was hard to do, but it was the right thing. We're gonna sit on cash. Um, some cash still. We put we reinvested some into existing positions. We're going to sit on some cash and look for something that we think has better upside. Okay, from so here. Th- this was a topic as well yesterday with mm-hmm. with Glenn Kacher, as I mentioned, of Light Street was on closing bell with me, um, who did the same. He sold it at the end of last year. Listen, why? I don't own Palo Alto anymore. I think um, you know that sector had a tremendous run last year. Uh, you know, Crowd CrowdStrike was up. Yeah, almost 200 uh, percent. And and, uh, you know, the whole sector was up 80 to 100 percent. So that's one where that's a sector we have pulled back from, even though those companies, the leaders are likely to you know, be able to adopt AI and utilize that in their business. OK, Josh, I'd love your opinion, too, because he, he references CrowdStrike. You have that. I know you like it. These stocks have a lot of love. They also have a lot of gains. And the valuations have expanded. So what do we do? Uh, it's, it's difficult. So I'm definitely not adding to CrowdStrike here. And if I had no position, I'm not sure that I'd be racing the buy to 300. But I also think you can, you can look at this and say this is a, a decade-long opportunity. It's possible you buy it here, it declines by 20%, but it's not the end of the world because the holding period is not 90 days. So it's, it's, look, it's, if you miss these companies, today is probably not the best possible time to buy them. Expectations have gone much higher, and so evaluations. So when Jenny says she's exiting it, she's being responsible. It's not the same opportunity as it was when she first bought it. Um, so I'm sympathetic to the idea that if you've got huge gains in these stocks, it's not the worst time to take some off the table. Um, in, ter- in terms of the, the future opportunity, though, 
I think this is one example where elevated valuations are justified because of how much these companies still have left to do uh, as this world just completely becomes digital, AI forward. Like, the, the opportunities just seem boundless. Not every one of these companies will win. I think Palo Alto and CrowdStrike are the number one and two market caps, and I think that's for a reason. So I like those two names. I don't think that I would race out to buy them here. All right. You want the last word here? No. Real quick? You good? No, thank you, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> See? We... We take, we give. All right, let's get the headlines now with Courtney Reagan. Hey, Court. Hi, Scott. Former President Trump returned to the courtroom for his lawyer's closing arguments in the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. It was shortly after he stormed out of the court earlier this morning as the attorney for E. Jean Carroll was telling jurors Trump was a liar who thinks the rules didn't apply to him. U.S. and Chinese officials will meet next week in Beijing for high-level talks to curb the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. This comes after a November meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, where they agreed to work together on the issues. And a man accused of stalking Taylor Swift was ordered held without bail after being arrested three times in recent days in front of her home in Manhattan. He was arraigned on charges of criminal contempt and was also ordered to take a psychiatric exam. Prosecutors say he violated a restraining order to stay away from Swift in her home when he was found near her Tribeca townhouse hours after it was issued on Wednesday. Scott, this is not the first stalker that she has had and had to deal with and get law enforcement involved. Back over to you. Court. All right, Court, thanks, Courtney Reagan. Coming up, AI and your money. Josh gives you his top takeaways from the Wealth Tech Conference in Las Vegas. You want to hear that. And later, we're singling out more key earnings uh, next week beyond tech. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we are back. One of the key questions about the emergence of generative AI is what impact it might have on the wealth management industry. Josh, you're just back from T3 in Vegas, and you wrote your newsletter yeah. about this. So clearly it had you thinking, and it's going to have us talking. Oh, for sure. I, I think uh, generative AI is coming to brokerage, wealth management, asset management in a very big way, uh, and, and not just people talking about ideas, but actual products are starting to find their way into people's practices. I think the main takeaway that I had was that there's two ways this could go. People from the technology realm have this belief system where all of a sudden AI is going to replace human fill in the blank, accountants, lawyers, doctors, financial advisors. Obviously, it never works out that way. That instinct is always wrong. What I think you're going to see in reality is AI tools being purpose-built to help advisors scale up, serve more clients, and do a much better job for their existing clients. That's where the trend seems to be headed, and that's what I wrote about at downtownjoshbrown.com. And I think we're just at the very, very early innings of a huge revolution coming to Wall Street. And I'm sure, Scott, will talk about that throughout the course of this year. Well, I mean, it, it all depends on what sort of services I suppose you're looking for and also the degree to which, you know, 
the type of assets that you have and the level of, of them for certain. For example, yes. Goldman Sachs, for example, I think the average person there has you know, $40 million of investable assets, okay? Uber wealthy people who Probably are never going to yes. let, I think that's the average, who are never going to let robots make decisions for them because their wealth planning and wealth management involves so many other things beyond just picking stocks and sectors and this, that, and the other thing. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's taxes, it's um, estate planning, it's a whole thing. But I, I mean, I, I could conceivably think that at the lower level of the investment scale, it may have a more, more dramatic impact. I think that's exactly right, Scott. And I would take it a step further. When, when we were talking about the robo-revolution 12, uh, 12 years ago, in 2012, Betterment and Wealthfront hit the scene, and then Vanguard and Schwab said they were going to build a robo-product. Um, we were talking about it, that in terms of it's an industry takeover. That's not actually what happened. What happened was the robo-revolution enabled people who didn't have access to quality financial advice to finally have a platform that would be better than the industry standard. The industry standard financial advisor for somebody with 50 grand 12 years ago was an insurance guy selling them an annuity. So the robo-revolution worked. It didn't take any money from, from the high end. Uh, and, and honestly, at this point, I think we all know it's never going to. It's already been too long for that to ever happen. This will play out the same way. There will be some B2C AI tools that get embedded at places like Fidelity Schwab. Nobody with a straight face thinks that a rich person wants to talk to a robot about his problems. Uh, it doesn't happen in the legal realm, doesn't happen in medicine, certainly not gonna happen here. So AI will be transformative, but only for firms that are willing to pair AI with experience and wisdom and, and personality and the types of people who thrive in wealth management already. I would look at it as augmenting what financial planners do, not replacing. Okay. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm just learning of a new move uh, as well uh, from Josh on a stock he's talked about a bunch lately. We'll do it next. Welcome back. So I teased going to break that I just saw that Josh had made a, a new move. Uh, you bought more Snap, um, which got upgraded today, yeah. by the way, uh, to buy from Hold, uh, which is an interesting call. I think it was at Deutsche. Yeah, Deutsche Bank. They raised the price target to 19 from 10. Talk about a stock that's mm. just ripped lately. I mean, you upgraded it yourself on this program many weeks ago. I've never liked it since it came public up until a couple of weeks ago. I've been gradually adding to it. They have, a, they have a quarterly report coming up. I think it's the sixth or the seventh. I should probably have my head examined for adding to it before the quarter. But here's what Deutsche Bank had to say. Um, they're talking about this uh, ad platform rebuild. If you recall, Snap is as bad or worse than Twitter at the advertising business, which is their main business, so that's funny. Um, but they just have never gotten that right. However, they've been making some really key hires from places like Alphabet uh, in, in recent history. 
And Deutsch is looking at recent ad checks that they think tell them there's momentum from Q3 into Q4 and possibly a reacceleration into Q1 on the back of that. When is the last time you've heard of anything like that? In addition, the Snap Plus product, I think, is the key to the whole story. They now have 7 million people paying $3.99 a month to get friendship superpowers. And these are, we're talking about kids, but Snap owns that market. If, if they're talking about 14 million by the, the end of this year. If they can confirm that they're still on track to have 14 million paid subs and the ad platform story uh, remains intact, that, that revamp, I think the stock's okay. So I'm in it. Uh, I don't trust them at all. I would probably add to it if, the, if they have a good report. I'd rather, no, I would rather pay up. I'd rather I'm pay up it. with some I confirmation. I don't trust them at all. That, I really be, don't. We should frame I, I'm that. being honest. I'm being very honest. <laughs> I, I know you are. That's the beauty of it, is that you're being I that always honest. Am. Yes, you are. To a uh, fault. I do, let me highlight, or not, let me highlight uh, another move. You trimmed United Rentals. Right. Do you tell, remember, us, tell us about that. Do you remember we did this three weeks ago, too? So we bought this in 2015 at $77 a share. Three weeks ago, we trimmed it when the stock was at 553. We trimmed it again yesterday after they announced earnings at 653. And it was wild because when we trimmed it yesterday, the shares were up $75 a share, which is basically what we paid for it way back. And what was interesting was they have a long history of earnings reports that are like, really good and then the stock just goes down for no good reason what happened yesterday was it was a good earnings report not the best and the stock went up a lot and we thought okay so this is a stock that's now trading at 15 times historically it's traded at eight to ten times we think the growth is still there it's not going to make for another 60 percent year like we had last year let's take some off the table let's get it back down to a three percent position in the portfolio sit on that cash on the sidelines repurpose it later isn't it funny it's it's so much easier to sell a stock on oh, a pop yeah. than one on a drop so much right? easier this goes back to the intel conversation <laughs> yeah, we're does. having you know you because you still have that tinge of hope that you're going to get a chance to actually sell it with a little bit of a bump well, back the other, it's inside the psyche of the investor pretty good these two examples is, i think but it's it's beyond just the psychology too which is and it gets back to Bryn's comment about about valuation and how careful you need to be with that being a trap both on forcing you to stay in and forcing you to sell out Right, so when, when I'm looking at Intel last year, I'm like, well, it's only 12 times. Historically, it's traded at this. As the stock comes down, mm. frequently the valuation comes more and more compelling, causing you to double down on wanting to stay in it. Okay, so we'll take a quick break. We come back. Mike Santoli is standing by with his midday word. Lots to talk about as we look ahead to that pivotal week next week. We'll do it next. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is at the desk today for his midday word. I just see GDP now at 3% for Q1. Yes, exactly. That's a big number. Came into the year to pretty where expectations hot. kind of were at, right? Yeah. It's actually an interesting reminder of, of one year ago, too. If you remember, everyone was sort of jolted that, the, that we started the economy really humming. Uh, we did get a bit of a surge in the S&P, although it was a different character. It was low-quality stocks. It was beat-up stuff that was mostly leading the way last January. So I don't think it's, it's easy to quibble with the macro fundamentals right now very much. That said, 
you know, we bumped our heads against S&P 4,800 for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Ping pong between 47 and 48 for about a month, mid-December into last Friday. Maybe something similar is happening at 49. But in general, it feels as if uh, the dips are not really given a chance to get too deep at this point. We could have a sell the news on some of the MAG7 earnings next year, uh, next week. Uh, we got the Treasury supply announcement on the 31st. You've got the Fed. We could start overreading into what Powell says. But I don't sure. think any of that's going to change that that the market is uh, is set up pretty well and it is in tune with the macro fundamentals at this point. Can you get your arms around the uh, from the MAG 7 to the AI 5? Do, do you like that? Yeah, I mean, Microsoft, hey, NVIDIA, AMD, Taiwan Semi, Broadcom. Let's just keep subdividing <laughs> hey, and recategorizing. It, it works, works for us. Thematically, there are a lot of ways to uh, to, to characterize what's going on. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. I, I wanted your input on that, of yep. course, more, more than anything else. Uh, I'll see you on closing, All right. Bill. All right, it's Mike Santoli. Final trades are next. I hope you'll join me on Closing Bell, 3 o'clock Eastern time today, because we have Dr. Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School. That's going to be a good one, because there's so much to talk about, what this market's doing and what it might do in the weeks ahead, ahead of the Fed, mega cap earnings and everything else. So I'll see you then. Let's talk about a couple movers, uh, if we could. Jimmy, let's do visa earnings. They beat. Take a look at the stock. Give me your take here. You own the stock. Down a little bit just because it's been up so massively over the last several months. I really wouldn't work. Great company. Great company. Easy to own if you believe the economic thesis that I have. Bryn, can you give me something real quick on Visa? You own it as well. Yeah, I mean, Visa and MasterCard are the toll booths for the financial ecosystem. I will say this. I saw some headlines about they said January growth was slow. But make no, make no mistake, they said it was because of the freezing weather. And so they have seen no consumer slowdown. Right. So I think it's a great, great way to own, own financials. All right. Real quick on Amex. Okay. So Amex. Real quick. It is by far the industry leader in terms of credit quality. Well, things like Discover have 3.9% delinquency rates. They have 1.3%. They guided for 13 to 17% earnings growth ahead. That's why the stock's up 6%. Okay. That was quick enough, I think. Final trade. Okay, one I should give more often. Let's Hercules Capital. It's a publicly traded private credit lender, 9% yield. Okay. Jimmy, have fun skiing. Chalet, Jim. Yeah, right. GM on earnings next week. Okay. Josh. Look at toast right now, bro. All right. Brandon, quick. Jeppy, income is the outcome. All right, guys. I appreciate it very much. You all have a good weekend. I will see you on Closing Bell. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. 
From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 